And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, Christ City. Oh, man. Good morning, Christ City. I'm needy, remember? I'm very, very needy, and I need that affirmation, so please give it to me. Uh, it is good to be with you this morning. Uh, really, really good. Um, let's pray, and then we're going to dive into our text this morning. Jesus, we, we, we need you this morning. More than we need uh, earthly affirmation, uh, more than we need our daily workout, more than we need um, anything, we need you this morning, Jesus. We need to recognize the freedom that you have won for us on the cross this morning. Lord, I ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open the eyes of both believer and unbeliever this morning, that we might see and behold and glory in uh, the truth that you have won for us, a freedom uh, that um, is much greater than the freedom of this world. So help us this morning, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, If you didn't hear uh, last week, uh, I had a kid recently. And so really, my goal for this morning is if I'm here and I'm standing and I'm like 60% coherent, uh, that's really my only goal this morning, okay? So a little grace would be fantastic. It's good to be with you. Uh, this morning we're looking at Colossians two thirteen to 15. But before we do that, I just want to tell a story really quickly. When I was at Bible college, we did a course uh, that surveyed different theological movements in the 20th century. It surveyed different theological movements. We looked at uh, feminist theology, where the aim was to read the Bible free from the patriarchal lens. We looked at movements like uh, open theism, which taught that God actually didn't know what was going to happen and thus really doesn't know what's happening right now. Uh, perhaps one of, the, one of the most interesting movements that we looked at uh, was this movement called Liberation Theology uh, by a guy, taught by a guy named Gustavo Gutierrez. Gustavo Gutierrez, Latin American guy. Now there's much that could be said about this theology and its implications, and, and we could debate this for a while, but in summary... Liberation theology, in its truest, uh, purest uh, form, uh, combines these these elements of Marxism and sort of a a social theology uh, to teach that God's primary concern in this world, God's primary concern in this world, is to physically overthrow the oppressors because God is on the side of the oppressed. Political freedom is the heart of this liberation uh, theology. And as you could imagine, given that this theological movement came out of Latin America and all that Latin America has experienced over the past century and before that, you can imagine this gained real traction, right? This really grew on the people there. See, the central biblical narrative for the liberation theologian is the the Exodus narrative, right? 
just as God uh, physically overthrew uh, the Pharaoh and Egypt, uh, so too does God want to physically overthrow uh, the political oppressors in our day. Now, on one hand, uh, there's a part of, of this liberation theology argued for by Gutierrez that we can affirm, right? There is no doubt that Jesus advocated a special concern for the rights and the welfare of the poor and helpless. How could you read the Gospels and not see that? On the other hand, liberation theologians seem to have, to have forgotten that Jesus specifically rejected a faith defined by a, a social and political struggle. That, that, that the nature of the kingdom of God was different even than those contemporaries wanted it to be, right? Do you remember the zealots who were with Jesus? Jesus, you're going to throw over Rome, right? You're, you're going to stop this Roman oppression, right? You're going to get rid of these, these captors, right? It's not so. See, Jesus, about to be crucified, is asked about the nature of his kingdom by Pilate. And how does Jesus respond? John 18 said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Further, the liberation theologians, preferring to see their ethnic group as the chosen oppressed people of God, whom God is on the side of, neglected to consider, as one op-ed columnist in the Washington Post noted, that the early church in its wrenching decision to include Gentiles as equals, explicitly rejected a community defined by ethnicity. No Christian theology that asserts Jesus is not for all can be biblical. We're all looking for freedom. Whether it is the political freedom that these liberation uh, theologians sought, or, or whether it's uh, the sexual freedom that the sexual revolutionaries of the 1960s and beyond sought, or if it's even just that simple freedom of, you know, when you're a teenager and you have a driver's license in one hand and car keys in the other hand, right? We're all looking in big ways and in small ways for freedom. For freedom. To throw off the chains, real or perceived, that keep us from what we truly desire. What we truly believe we deserve. We're all seeking, all desiring for, all longing for, Christian or non-Christian, freedom. Freedom. This desire to be free uh, influences everything from what we buy to the theology we ascribe to. From who we befriend to what we believe to be ultimately true about this world. So perhaps you've come here this morning and, and, and you're not a follower of Jesus. Somebody dragged you in here. You got invited. I don't know how you showed up. Maybe you feel this. Feel trapped. Feel enslaved. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus this morning and you feel the same. Trapped or enslaved. And you can't quite put your finger on it. The good news I want us to spend our time this morning looking at is that because of Jesus' death on the cross, and only because of Jesus' death on the cross, we have this tremendous comfort of freedom. Jesus has come to bring us freedom. If you were to open your Bibles to Galatians 5, verse 1, you would read this oft-quoted verse, right? 
For freedom, Christ has set you free. So working off the presumption that Christ wants us to be free this morning, here's what I want us to do with our text. I want us to look at verse 13 and ask this question. First point, what is the freedom we have in Christ? What is this freedom we have in Christ? Then moving to verses 14 to 15, we'll answer the question, how has this been accomplished for us? So what is this freedom we have in Christ? How has this been accomplished for us? And then finally, we'll actually continue past verse 15. Look at verse 16 and 17 and ask, how do we take these theological beliefs, these big truths, and apply these to our lives, asking, how do we live in this freedom? Really simply, if you're a note taker, here it is. What is the freedom we have in Christ? How has this been accomplished for us? And how do we actually live functionally day to day in this freedom? So if you have your Bibles, go with me. Colossians 2 verse 13. If you don't have a Bible at all, just a reminder, we have Bibles at the back just around the corner. Take it, keep it. That's our gift to you. We want you to be in your word, a hearing from God, not just here, but as you leave as well, okay? So if you need a Bible, grab a Bible, Colossians 2, uh, 13, pull it up either in hard copy or on your app. It reads like this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. In another letter to the much uh, larger church in Ephesus, Paul writes much the same. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The greatest bondage, the realest chains, the truest death that each person in this world experiences outside of Christ is not to a political power, is not to a regime, is not to an oppressive system, but rather to our spiritual deadness in sin. This, this, this type of spiritual deadness, spoken of here in both Colossians and Ephesians, that makes a person cold to the reality of the truth about God. In yet another letter, Paul writes to the church in Corinth that such a person who is dead outside of Christ, having not experienced this resurrection life in Jesus, is a natural person, Paul says. 1 Corinthians 2, Paul writes, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. According to the Bible, uh, there are two humanities. Two humanities. There's the natural person that we read about here in 1 Corinthians 2 that Paul says is dead to the things of God, dead to the things of his spirit. Namely, the truth that the spirit testifies to about the Son of God, Jesus. The natural person is dead to these things. The other person, Paul calls, is the spiritual person who is alive to the things of the Spirit of God, who is alive to the things that the Spirit testifies to concerning Jesus. That Jesus is who he says he is. So all of us then, including those Colossians outside of Jesus, were dead in our trespasses. Unable to know the things of God. Unable to please God. Unable to obey his commands. Our works 
our deeds, those of ignorant, natural people, condemned us. And if you've been in the church for a while, you, kinda, you can wrap your head around this. If you haven't, this sounds strange and foreign, and we'll explain it. Don't worry. But then Paul adds in verse 13 of, of Colossians 2, Perhaps to our confusion, you were dead in your trespasses and, did you, did you catch that? The uncircumcision of your flesh. What has that got to do with anything here, Paul? But what are we talking about here? Were we preaching a, a series in Colossians where all we did was talk about this letter? Uh, we would know by this point uh, that the church in Colossae is primarily comprised not, not, not of Jewish believers, but of non-Jewish, Gentile, pagan believers. In fact, uh, two of the founding members in this sort of obscure rural church uh, are a guy named Epaphras and Philemon. Epaphras, a Gentile, and Philemon, a Gentile slave. Picture this. These Gentiles, including those two who now give leadership to this community, at one point were estranged from the promises of God. So here's where we get out of verse 13. Not only did their transgression of the law condemn them, but also as Gentiles, as pagans, as non-Jews, their ethnicity condemned them as well. It's, it's double condemnation, right? You can't keep the law, and you're also a pagan. Sorry. But Paul comes with the good news. Now, to the Jew listening to this, uh, the thought would be that, that Paul would say something like this. Well, don't worry now. You've become a Jew. You've become one of us, right? That's not what Paul says. How does Paul continue? He says, you... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Notice this. Paul says, you, you pagan, you Gentile, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Did you notice that movement in the text? Paul moves from you to us, to, to, to we. The we, of course, referring both to Gentile and Jew, both to the circumcised and the uncircumcised, both to the pagan and the so-called righteous. So here's the picture we find in verse 13 of Colossians 2. Picture, if you will, uh, the cross like a vacuum, like a vacuum. Up here, above the vacuum, we have these uh, Torah-observant, Sabbath-observant, dietary-restriction-observant Jews, uh, like Paul and his contemporaries, right? These are the chosen people of God. Down here, below the cross, we have these pagans, Gentiles, people like you and I, unclean, unkept, unlikely inheritors of the promises of God. But the cross... Acting as this vacuum brings both the Jew and the Gentile together. See, not only has, has Paul invited the Colossians to join him in the people of God, but the Colossians have invited Paul to join him, to join them rather, in this company of forgiven sinners. It, it, it moves both ways. Your, your self-righteousness, the cross does away with it. The cross says, you're so bad, Jesus had to die. Your uncleanliness, uncleanliness, your uh, unkeptness. The cross has come. Jesus died. Now, by Jesus' death on the cross, 
The Colossians have joined Paul and the people of God, but Paul has also joined them in the company of forgiven sinners. Not by religious observance, but by Christ's cross work. Now, and only now, can both the self-righteous and the self-loathing say together, we are no longer spiritually dead, but now spiritually alive. Because God has breathed life into us, we can know him, we can walk with him. We are not that natural person of 1 Corinthians 2 anymore. Rather, we are these spiritual people attuned to the Spirit of God and what he says about Jesus. Further, we are no longer guilty. Not not, not only does our ethnicity not condemn us anymore, but neither do our transgressions. Our first question this morning, what is the freedom we have in Christ? Answer, We who were dead have been made alive. We who were condemned have been declared not guilty. We who stood trembling before the judge are now out of the courtroom. Now, and only now, I think it becomes clear as to how this freedom is so much greater than those freedoms we considered earlier. Every other so-called freedom this world has to offer presupposes that the problem is out there with those politicians, with those people, with their opinions. Only the freedom Christ offers speaks to the more nefarious situation in here. Only the freedom of Christ addresses the five-alarm blaze that rages inside all of us and threatens to burn us down. Only the freedom of Christ cures the cancer that is slowly eating away at us. In Christ, through the cross, we've been given resurrection, Holy Spirit, and dwelling life, and a pardon from our sin. It's pretty amazing, right? It gets better. Wait until you hear how Jesus has won us this costly freedom. Verse uh, 14 to 15, building off verse 13, look with me. It goes like this. He's done this by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. There are two ways, two ways that this freedom has been obtained for us. Both are realities flowing out of the cross. First, notice in verse 14, on the cross of Christ, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands was also nailed there, and thus paid for. And second, Through the cross, the rulers and authorities have been disarmed, put to open shame, and triumphed over. So first, our record of debt was nailed to the cross and thus paid for. If if you and I were to go back to the Gospel of John and read John's account uh, of the crucifixion of Jesus, we'd find in John 19 that John explicitly mentions two things being nailed to the cross. John 19 says this, So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. 
it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Two things were put. Two things were nailed on the cross. One, Jesus Christ himself. And and two, Pilate's inscription that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. But according to our text today, however, there is a third unseen thing nailed to the cross of Jesus. What is that? A record of debt. You see, in the ancient world, uh, this thing that would be nailed above a criminal's head, this thing called a, a titulus, a titulus, would announce to all who are walking by just what exactly this criminal had done, what they had been crucified for. And so Pilate wrote on Jesus' titulus that Jesus was crucified for being king of the Jews. And the Jews, understandably, wanted the titulus to be changed to say, hey, no, no, he's crucified for saying he was the king of the Jews. But Paul skips this debate altogether. He looks past the indictment of Pilate. He looks past the desired indictment of the Jews and sees what the true and better titulus says above Jesus' head. What does it say? Here is Jesus who died to pay for our sin. You and I, indeed everyone who has ever walked on this planet, in our own penmanship and with our own signature, have written out to God an IOU of an amount that we could never repay. But the good news is, just as it was the custom in the ancient world to stick an IOU on a nail for all to see, right, the moment that that debt was paid, so too are the IOUs of all who come to believe in Jesus declared paid in full at the cross of Christ. See, this word canceled we find here in Colossians 2 can also, I mean, really truly means blotted out. And so we're reminded of the words of Isaiah again, 700 years before this crucifixion. What does Isaiah say? I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. But don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. God's not remembering our sins is not a matter of cosmic amnesia. It's not a matter of God being a a grandfatherly type and just winking to you and say, don't worry. Keep just this between you you and I. I'll just forget about it, right? I, I won't tell your parents. The freedom that is won for us on the cross is a costly freedom. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, crucified in our place so that our record of debt is canceled. And we're meant to feel this. Many of you know uh, the hymn writer Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford, famous hymn writer, also a lawyer. A a famous story is told of how uh, Spafford's uh, wife and four daughters were traveling across the Atlantic. And their ship uh, collided with another ship, and and their ship sank. And the four four daughters died, and and Spafford's wife hung on to a, a piece of driftwood, Uh, only to be rescued and to arrive in Wales and to telegraph back to her husband, Horatio, saved alone, what shall I do? 
So, pa- so Spafford, uh, being the good husband, uh, books passage on the next available ship. And, and as he's crossing the Atlantic to comfort his grieving wife, uh, the captain calls him forward uh, to, to, the, to the front of the ship and says, here is the point uh, where, where that ship sunk. Here is the, is the part of the ocean where your daughters have died. And the story goes, it is here on this journey to Wales that Spafford wrote, it is well with my soul. And in that famous hymn, we find this verse. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. There is immeasurable comfort knowing that we and those we love who are in Christ have obtained an eternal freedom. A freedom that even the frigid waters of the Atlantic could not take away. Because our sin was nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. But there's a second how in our text this morning. Indeed, Because it is true that our record of debt has been nailed to the cross alongside Christ, it is also now true, Colossians 2.15, that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so, one author notes, in the cross of Christ, God not only triumphed over sin, he also triumphed over Satan. This is a, a worthwhile, worthwhile aside, so just stick with me for a second. It is important to remember, as people who live on this side of the scientific revolution, as people who like to consider themselves, you know, like thinking people and, and scientific people, that we believe as Christians in the demonic. We believe in angels and demons. We believe there exists an enemy of God called Satan. Now, let's be clear here. Satan is not the yin to God's yang. We, we get that confused, don't we? He's evil, God is good, right? They're, they're somehow equals. Not so. Not so. Satan is a created being who will one day endure eternal torment and punishment, just as though all those outside of Christ will endure. Hell is not Satan's playground. Hell is where Satan will face punishment and judgment. We get this confused sometimes. As, as a church, because we do live on this side of the scientific revolution, we don't know how to deal with the demonic, with the spiritual, right? We want to make everything into understandable, neatly, uh, you know, tidy little categories. I, I found that C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Screwtape Letters, which if you haven't read, you need to read. Uh, in his introduction, he gives us a helpful paradigm in terms of how we should think about uh, Satan and the demonic. Lewis writes this, and this has been helpful for me uh, for a while now. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So we should not be obsessive. There is not a demon under every rock and behind every tree. But on the flip side, we should not be ignorant 
That's the reality of, of what God's word says. Like, have you ever seen the ministry of Jesus? We shouldn't be functional materialists who just look at the seen realm as, as all there is. That was an aside, right? Just in case we, we, we forget that sometimes. But as it pertains to our text today, what we want to see, what, what Paul wants us to see, is that one of Satan's greatest joys, one of the greatest joys of the demonic, is, is to spy out the freedom you have in Christ and to rob you of that. Here's what I want us to see. Paul says to these rulers, to these authorities, speaking both to the heavenly rulers and authorities, the demonic, the unseen, also to these demonic and unseen authorities, rather these seen authorities here now, these evil institutions. Paul says, good news, Christians. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This language of putting them to open shame, this language of triumphing over them, in the era it was written to the Colossians, this is very specific language designed to evoke very specific imagery, right? Immediately, the imagination of a Colossian believer would be turned on to think of something, and to be this. Rome, the dominant superpower at the time, had this practice where they would conquer a a people, they would conquer nations, and and they would announce this conquering, announce this victory, and immediately what would follow is this three-day processional. This three-day processional where they would line the streets with scaffolding and, and, and seating, and people would gather from everywhere to come watch the processional of these defeated peoples, right? It makes the Super Bowl parade look small, right? These were big, big gatherings. On the first day, on the first day of this processional, uh, they'd walk their, their defeated people in, and, and they would show and demonstrate all these cultural artifacts, right? Paintings, statues. See what we got from them? On the second day would be all the armor, all the silver, the chariots, right? Overflowing, right? These, these swords banging together, making this loud noise as they proceeded down the street with everybody watching. On the third day, or the day everybody was waiting for, we'd see slaves paraded down the street of these conquered peoples. And then following those slaves would be the conquered king's servants themselves. And then following the king's servants would be the children of the king, begging for mercy, begging for mercy. Finally, the king himself would come, stripped of all his glory, put to open shame. And at the very end of this triumphal procession that lasted three days would come the victorious general, as if to say, all this happened because of me. I've done this. Jesus, through his death on the cross and his glorious resurrection on the third day, is the better victorious general. He is the victorious general worthy of our praise. That's what Paul wants us to see. See, Paul wants us to know that what has happened to Satan and his demons is what has happened to evil itself. Like a conquered nation, they have been put to shame. Disarmed. And if you're looking at me confused, I feel that. Because it doesn't always feel like the rulers and authorities have been put to shame, does it? Right? This sounds like, Jake, have you been out there? <laughs> like, 
do you ever leave the pulpit? Do you, just, do you just wait here every Sunday for people to show up and then preach again? Like this is a hostile world we inhabit, isn't it? We'll leave this place. We'll go to jobs and, and to schools where we will feel like the exact opposite is true. Not that Satan and his demons have been put to open shame, but rather that Christ and his followers have. We live increasingly on the margins of society, feeling not like the victorious nation, but like the scorned and mocked slave of the defeated nation. It feels like we're on the losing side sometimes, doesn't it? If you're able... I want us to take this tension that we find ourselves in now, this uncomfortableness, this entirely you know, not sure what to do with this shaming and disarming, and take them to Colossians uh, 2, 16 to 17. And I think Colossians 2, 16 to 17 will be helpful in clarifying just exactly what we're talking about here when we talk about this, this shaming, this, this disarming. Colossians 2, 16 to 17, it reads like this. Therefore, In light of these realities, because of what we have just talked about, let no one pass judgment on you in regards of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Go with me, if you can, once more to the cross of Jesus. Satan is salivating. Not only is Satan salivating, but all of Rome is salivating. This Jesus, who could have been a problem, well, laid to rest. A problem no longer. Authorities, rulers, powers, principalities, seemingly one. And yet Paul says, they've actually been defeated. They've actually been put to open shame. They've actually been disarmed. I want to scream, how? How? It doesn't feel like that, Paul. I don't feel like that, Paul. Here's what he says in verse 16 to 17. Let's distill this. The powers and voices of this world, whether they be demonic, your own voice, or the voice of another, they have nothing left they can say about you. They have no more power over you because there is nothing that they can charge you with that can stick. Christian, please see this. Nothing they can accuse you with can condemn you. It has all been canceled. It has all been forgiven. My sin, not in part, but what? The whole. The whole has been blotted out. See, the Colossians had slipped into believing that that Jesus and what Jesus did for them on the cross, well, it it just wasn't enough. Yeah, that was okay, and we're thankful for it, but but we want those fancy uh, dietary restrictions that the Jews have, right? Those those sound spiritual, right? We want to observe that festival, right? That that looks like a, a spiritual festival. Right, right, like the Sabbath? Oh, th- th- that sounds like a spiritual thing to do. And we should probably do, 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 do and make all these rules about it. That sounds spiritual. In short, they were looking back into the shadows 
back at the law, back at its requirements, all the while missing the substance and fullness that is the freedom we have in Christ. Uh, Our final question this morning is how do we live in this freedom? But it really should be, how do we disarm, how do we put to shame every single day the rulers and authorities in our life? How do we do this every single day? Answer, we join the glorious procession of the victorious, a procession that will conclude with the return of Jesus. How? By refusing to submit again to a yoke of slavery, by exercising our freedom in Christ, by refusing to give the powers and the rulers authority, uh, by refusing to give them an inch in your life, to give them a word in your life, See, we already read from Galatians 5, but I want us to read the entirety of verse 1. Galatians 5, verse 1 reads like this. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. I was thinking about this this week and talking with Fred and with Brett. If I could preach just one message my entire pastoral career, my entire pastoral life, if there was like one thing I could just go over and over and over again on, it would be this. Do not put on yourself and on other people what Christ has freed you from on the cross. Do not put on yourself and on other people what Christ has freed you from on the cross. We, each one of us, have a version of the Christian life that says faithfulness, means the cross plus something else. For the Colossians to be truly faithful meant to observe certain dietary practices, festival practices, Sabbath practices. For us, we add to the cross uh, to be truly faithful. Well, you've got to do your devotional each morning, right? This, if you really want to be you know, a, a true Christian, 15 minutes of prayer, three chapters of Bible reading, Right? We say that, right? We add to the cross, to be truly faithful, you vote for this political party. I was reading an article this morning in the New York Times about a pastor who spent the better part of the last year lobbying for a particular presidential candidate. To be truly faithful, you vote for this and this political party. To be truly faithful, we add to the cross, you parent in such and such a way, right? You use this method, and you don't do this. And you do this four or five times a day, if you you really want to be faithful. I want to be very, very, very clear about this. These are doctrines of demons. To add anything to the cross of Christ, to say that God loves you more, that he accepts you more because you observe these things, is to fall into the lie of Satan. Like There is no dancing around this. There's no making nice with this. It's demonic. It's divisive. And it's toxic. See, Satan loves to take good things, right? Like, spending time with Jesus is a good thing. That's a good thing. Parenting is a good thing. Exercising wisdom in our voting is a good thing. But he loves to take good things, gifts, and twist them, and, and warp them, and whisper to us, the approving work of Christ is not enough. 
each and every time we condemn ourselves or someone else, each and every time we pass judgment, we return again to a yoke of slavery. Perhaps, Christian, that is you this morning. There's this famous uh, story told of Luther, of a dream he had, where Satan came to him. And Satan begins sort of rattling off this huge list of sins that Luther has and, and, and will have. And Luther looks at the list and, and he actually adds a few to that list. You, you miss some, Satan. It's actually worse than you think. As Satan is about to go, as the accuser is about to leave, what does Luther say? But for the blood of Christ. All of that is true, but for the blood of Christ. But for what Christ has done by canceling my record of debt on my behalf on that cross. See, this world wants us to say this about freedom. True freedom, true freedom is found in just sort of pushing aside and ignoring these bad things in life, right? Finding Zen, right? Inner peace. What the scripture says about freedom is that we look at all these problems and we don't ignore them. And we don't push them aside. Rather, we trust that they've been dealt with. Right? That is the freedom Christ comes to offer. That is this great comfort Christ comes to offer. And if you come this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, this whole Jesus thing is, is new to you. I know this because I was once not a Christian. This is going to sound arrogant and outrageous. Uh, and, and definitely offensive. All the freedoms being shopped outside these doors by politicians, by activists, by your co-workers, are actually just differing forms of the, sla- of the same bondage, the same slavery. You will never, ever, ever, ever measure up. You will fight, and you will climb, and you will yell, and you will scream. And at the end of the day, guess what? It's not enough. It's not enough. Now, I know this sounds like bad news to you, but trust me, this is the beginning of the good news. The freedom Jesus offers isn't just another freedom in a long line of freedoms. Jesus' freedom takes the chains that are wrapped around us, and places them upon himself. And then he goes to the cross. He nails them there. If you're not a follower of Jesus, know that when you come to him, you'll find that you're signed Titulus. With your handwriting, and with your signature on it, hangs above his head. The comfort of the cross this morning is the comfort of freedom. Do not return again to a yoke of slavery. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.